being one of the first to really face the first wave in the U.S., very, very strong wave, that there are a lot of lessons that other communities can apply. We're in the middle of assessing our own data through CARES program and saying that, are there any patterns that are important to note? And I think that data is going to be very helpful because we have over 4,000 patients enrolled in the CARES program, and I think that's a lot of information to come. Welcome to 20-Minute Health Talk, where some of the brightest minds in healthcare help us break down the latest news and developments. I'm your host, Rob Hoyle, and today we're talking about the long-term effects of COVID-19. And our special guests are Dr. Annika Sager, who is the director of the CARES program at Northwell, which is the COVID Ambulatory Resource Support Program, and Dr. David Battinelli, who's the chief medical officer, and he's also the vice dean at the Zucker School of Medicine. A lot of people call it long haulers disease, but we don't like to call it that. What, what should it be called? What we really want to use the term is going to be either post-acute sequelae, if we're talking the scientific term for long haulers, or uh, more commonly known as a long COVID or effects after having COVID. The reason that we want to really shy away from the term long haulers is because I think it gives a sense to the patients and their family members that this is something that is going to be forever reaching. um, And we really want to try to support them more than taboo them with sure. the term. It is kind of scary to think that we still people who have had COVID are still feeling effects of this, but this is something that's very new. We learned so much in the fight of COVID and we're still going to learn so much more about how to treat the, the long-term effects. Yeah, I think this is not so distinct from some other illnesses uh, through the years that uh, when they first appear, um, there are lots of symptoms that seem to take longer than you might suspect that they should, but If you think more carefully about it, we've never seen it before. So how do we know how long it's supposed to take? So it can be pretty alarming, disheartening, and confusing for patients. Yeah. Is there a correlation of the effects of how severe somebody may have COVID that that their, their effects are longer? Or is it just we're still trying to figure all that stuff out? So I think um, it's a mix of both. So we do have studies that tell us people who were hospitalized because they had severe symptoms or needed oxygen support tend to be more likely to develop the post-COVID symptoms. But also we are seeing now more patients who have very mild symptoms, were managed at home, didn't need oxygen, but still are having these lingering sequelae or symptoms over a period of time that is still to be defined. Yeah, it's tough because that's a little bit of a numbers game, too. So a lot of people are in the hospital, but more people get COVID who don't get hospitalized. So even if it's just a small percentage, that can be a large number of people who have this. And then again, I think that's the part that uh, people find a little shocking. Like, what do you mean? Uh, I can wind up with some of these long-term sequelae, even though I didn't get seriously ill with COVID. You know, what's that about? So we have 4,000 people enrolled in the CARES program. How does that compare to other studies? So I think that's a good question. There are many programs available in the tri-state area, but also across New York State. And I think one of the things we need to understand and build on is collaborating across these programs to understand what are the lessons learned and what are the different models of providing care to these patients. Because the CARES model is unique in that we don't have a geographic location, right? So we exist across the entire footprint of Northwell. So we're enterprise-wide from New York City all the way out to Ronkonkoma and beyond. Um, But the other option is to have a 
one single location. And I think that works in certain resources in certain communities. I think Northwell is very unique in how many patients we serve and how many communities and the diversity of the community. Um, and also we, we realize that a lot of our patients do have social determinants of health. So we think that's a very important part of addressing it which I think the team has done a phenomenal job, both from Health Solutions and Northland Network Care, to really be able to pull in those aspects um, to make sure that we're thinking about not just the patient, but also the family whole. Yeah, we were one of the uh, biggest players, of course, uh, you know, in the healthcare with COVID. Um, you know, we probably treated uh, 100,000 patients, um, hospitalized, as I said, over 5,000. So, um, it, it's a, this is a big job. Um, and again, you know, I, I'm optimistic that patients are trusting us a little bit more and more with the science, with the vaccine, and will engage with us, uh, hopefully as early possible, so that we can learn even more. How did the COVID Ambulatory Resource Support Program come to be? Sure. So CARES came to be um, by the really thoughtful approach of a lot of ambulatory, both clinicians, but also interdisciplinary team, right? So we, we have, the CARES program is kind of like a platform for a lot of these teams to come together, right? So our Northland Network Care team, which is our navigation team that follows these patients from the first day onwards for life, as like they like to say it, um, have a large team of RNs and NPs, right? So we have all of their resources. Then we have Health Solutions, who is doing a lot of the work for care navigation, but also the infusions that you mentioned, right, as well as transportation needs for these patients. So it's hard to put a number to how many people are involved in CARES, but I, what I like to say is every organ, every system, every need that you can think of is being addressed through CARES, and it's a, it's a family of people. <laughs> and we came together because we all realized that the volume of patients that we're seeing in the ambulatory side is very large. But we're probably not reaching everybody because people are having a tough time getting an appointment. So this was probably towards the middle of the wave, the first wave. And we realized that we need to build this partnership very quickly. Um, and I think that necessity is the, the impetus for innovation. And we built these partnerships in order to help patients who didn't have primary care doctors before get primary care doctors and get the care that they need. Um, but I think that one of the key things is the innovation part was not so much that this is a, a brand new way of doing medical care, but I think it was how quickly each of these teams came together to provide the best patient care they could in a time where we had very limited resources, but pooling those resources was key. So what does this program look like? How does the journey start? So journey starts with a simple phone call. Um, that the patient calls the CARES program and our Northwell Network Care nurses get attached to the patient and they do a brief what we call intake to understand what are the needs that the patient themselves are identifying, but what are the needs that they may not realize that we can help. And those, are, those can be behavioral health, those can be sleep needs, those can be financial needs, housing, transportation needs. Once the RNs have done the intake, then they hand those patients off to the particular clinicians that they feel would be best. 
Now, some patients come in with primary care doctors outside and they want like a second opinion or they're really looking for a cardiology or behavioral health. Um, so they, those patients are directed directly to those subspecialists. But the other journey is of the patient who's just turned 20, right? They've graduated out of their pediatrician. They have not had a chance to have a primary care doctor. So these relationships are the first time they're having an adult healthcare encounter. And we think that it's very important that they be handed off in a very, what we call warm handoff, meaning the clinician understands what the patient needs, the patient knows who the clinician is, and they establish that primary care relationship. It's awesome. Is there like a cascading effect when you find like a certain thing that a certain solution or you figure out certain problem, how to solve it? Does that help make other things better and like being like a cascading effect, maybe a domino effect to more solutions and, and more cures? Whenever you put into uh, play a coordinated therapeutic effort, um, and I think one of the things that ACAD has done so well is helped these teams coordinate the care. Um, these are people who need care. And um, you learn each time that you do that. And uh, yeah, it may be a domino effect because now you're going to see a little bit of something here and there that you saw in others. And, and people start to make these relationships like maybe that's not just uh, a mild aberration. Maybe that's a pattern. Um, so, uh, again, it's sort of a, a learning collaborative. Is it also helpful that this research is taking place in a time where we're starting to see the hospitalizations and the the positive effects, you know, the positive rates go down and that like it seems like COVID is on on the way out? Is this going to help for the, you know, concentrate more on the the people with the long-term effects? There's so much work to do that, uh, yeah, we will be con convening a little bit more work on those patients as opposed to the overwhelming uh, need we had to be able to do transitions of care out of acute care settings, keep people out of the hospital, the infusions have, uh, have lessened. Yeah, it, it will give us a, a lot more time to sort of breathe and think. So how do you oversee all this? How do you be responsible for all this information? So I like to say that um, it's the team that oversees all of it. Um, we have two models within CARES. So one is our steering committee, which I'm forever grateful to, which encompasses a lot of different disciplines, a lot of different parts of the health system that bring us vision, but also attest that there's a need that we're not fulfilling. Then there is what we call the learning collaborative, which is actually every clinician that is part of CARES is enrolled into. And they are bi-monthly meetings where we go over guidelines, new evidence, but we also have a ongoing chat on the side that allows people to say, I've seen this patient, they need this, can we get it? And the fact that the other team members can jump in and have that impetus and the independence to do so, I think makes my job as a director much easier because I think of my role not as overseer, but more as a empower for people to perform the best that they can. Yeah. And how do you get people in, enrolled in this program to learn more? I mean, because research is so vital. Absolutely. So one of the ways that we're encouraging folks is if you are having lingering symptoms, you can definitely reach out to the CARES program through our hotline um, or through our website. But the other way is also Feinstein, which is our research institute at Northwell, is also recruiting patients and enrolling patients in studies, which is also a great resource that we can access at the public level. 
Yeah, we're, we're trying to make sure that we support our practitioners, right? Because there's a lot of patients out there. So we're not really, you know, saying that, listen, anybody who's got a little bit of these symptoms come running into the program. We want our practitioners to be able to handle them. But for those that uh, either are uncomfortable with that, don't seem to be making the progress they should, um, need another opinion, um, the program's terrific. It is so important that even if patients or, you know, family members and community members have had covid and they're outside of the window of that two to four weeks since having the infection, it's really important to get vaccinated because you can still get reinfected. And the reinfection can be worse than the first time. So the vaccine is still protective and we strongly encourage folks to really seek out those vaccinations. Yeah, and I guess what's really important about that too is that there is these different variants. So if you did get COVID and had mild effects, maybe you had one variant, maybe another variant affects you even more. Absolutely. And I think that's something that we're still trying to understand based on epidemiology. What about for the School of Medicine? How has it changed the curriculum? Are students now studying more about the COVID and the long-term effects of COVID? Yeah, two big things. One is, uh, you know, becomes part of the curriculum immediately, just like AIDS did, you know, a number of years ago. But the other part is that we're uh, teaching a little bit more about virtual care since we did a lot more um, so-called telehealth or non-in-person care. Um, so we've already embraced that at the school. Yeah, I think that's also a, a really good platform for innovation, but also research, right? Like what are the things that we can do on telehealth that would be beneficial that we haven't thought of before, um, which I think a lot of our students are very excited about. Um, and I think speaking of collaboration, the other thing is also um, allowing our protocols, but also our kind of guiding principles for the programs to be shared widely. So we have, you know, partnered with the New York State Department of Health, New York City Department of Health. We've published a couple of manuscripts on it, so which is fantastic. We are in the process, we have shared some of the protocols for the medicine that we've used to manage patients at home that's been adapted in various settings. Um, we've even actually sent them over to the West Coast. We've sent them over to even globally, we've shared them, um, which are very helpful because being one of the first to really face the first wave in the U.S., very, very strong wave that there are a lot of learning lessons that other communities can apply. And the other aspect of publication is, you know, we're in the middle of assessing our own data through CARES program and saying that, are there any patterns that are important to note? And I think that data is going to be very helpful because we have over 4,000 patients enrolled in the CARES program. And I think that's a lot of information to come. Yeah. And what are some of the lessons learned already? Let me just uh, also you know, add a little bit about the research piece. So we have collectively already published um, in this really short period of time over 520 peer-reviewed publications on COVID alone. Um, and I think this demonstrates the excitement um, that the community has to sort of figure this out, to share the knowledge, um, and uh, to work collaboratively together. So we've never been as productive on that end as we have through through this COVID piece. Who are some of the experts that are tackling this problem in research? And again, it's it's a collaboration, so it's it's literally everybody. I mean, we have people um, infectious disease, cardiology, neurology, general medicine, public health, urology, ENT. I mean, everywhere that this disease touches, people have been studying it and publishing. I think the the other 
impressive thing about the research from the researcher's perspective, but also from the clinicians. I think it's been one of the fastest transition from what we say science to bedside, which I think has been phenomenal for both our students, but also us as primary care doctors or practicing physicians outside, which has been really um, re-energized a lot of our interest in doing that research. Right. I think one of the most common things that people uh, experience and something I experienced, I have COVID and I got a very mild version of COVID, but I lost my smell. I lost my taste. I feel like my taste is pretty much back to normal, but I still certain things I don't smell. Um, so I'm kind of hoping that's going to change soon or that they'll figure out something that, that can be done to help me get my smell back. Absolutely. So I also have patients, whether that's within the CARES program or it's outside in my own primary care practice, who have had loss of taste or loss of smell for even six to eight months down the line. But what is reassuring is majority of them have had slow but progressive return of their senses, which is nice. Yeah. And that's something that's happening just on its own. That's not with any medicine or any treatments. Supportive care. Um, you know, the other piece is that neurologic sequelae, of which there are many with COVID, um, the nervous system takes a long time to regenerate, um, probably as long as any organ, any organ system that we have. So you really have to be patient, especially with things like that were serious. I mean, you know, when you had your loss of smell, that meant that the neurons, uh, you know, up in your brain, they, they were damaged and, and they'll take a while to come back. Right. One of the other things that people talk about a lot and we hear a lot about is like a COVID fog or like memory loss. Uh, what are we learning about that? So I think it's... It's been a journey to really start to learn about it because first we had to understand how to even detect it and screen for it for patients who had COVID. So now what we understand is whether the patient had mild symptoms or somebody who wasn't hospitalized, either one of those patients can have this brain fog that people like to um, use the term. And what to me that looks like is going to be people are having a really tough time doing basic things that they were used to doing every day. So whether that's, you know, tabulating their grocery bill at the grocery store or figuring out, okay, this, the drive from home to work, I have to find a different way. They're having some of those difficulties that are very basic in nature. Do we know anything now about things that people can do at home, whether it's diet, exercise, any of those types of things that could help, you know, speed up the, the recovery from the long term effects? It's the basics, um, you know, proper nutrition, proper sleep. Um, there's a lot of sleep disturbance in this. Um, those are two are probably the biggest. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with Dr. Batnelli. I think having a well-balanced diet, hydrating well with water, right? Um, and also seeking help early is key to any illness, right? So if people are having long-term effects, they should seek out assistance because we do have these therapy plans that may be helpful. Um, we always like to end on a positive note here at 20-Minute Health Talk. So um, what gives you hope? And we'll start with you, Dr. Sager. What gives you hope? What gives you optimism going forward? So I will have to say it's the vaccines that are giving me a lot of hope because as the volume of patients who are getting diagnosed with COVID or new COVID goes down, uh, my eternal hope is that, you know, a program such as ours will not be needed a year from now and that we will be able to help a lot of people transition out of it. Um, but also what gives me hope is like the work that my team, but also our um, 
vast amount of partnership that we found at Northwell across the board has been amazing. Awesome. And Dr. Batnelli, what gives you hope going forward? Well, uh, clearly the vaccine has been a great story, but I also think that uh, this has been good for the public to understand that we do need to follow the science. And I think people are becoming more and more reassured as we move forward that, uh, you know, we're true to the science. We will adapt. We will change our understanding of the disease. We'll be transparent. And uh, the science is going to be what really helps us figure this out. Well, Dr. Batnelli, Dr. Sager, thank you so much for joining us on 20-Minute Health Talk. And for you, the listener, thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Rob Hoyle. Have a great day and stay safe. Get more expert insight from some of the leading voices in healthcare today. Subscribe to 20-Minute Health Talk on Podbean, Pandora, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.